remember it being cold when I got off the plane, 44 degrees to be exact, rain drizzling in and dancing away as it does in Texas in November. My flight was just one of a thousand, shuttling college kids from their campuses to their hometowns for the holidays. It was my junior year of college at the University of Southern California, and I was coming back home to visit my family for Thanksgiving break. Nothing was out of the ordinary. In fact, I remember being relatively calm. I had several final presentations coming up just over the horizon of the break, so I spent most of the week sketching out prototypes for my entrepreneurship course and conjugating complex verbs for French 3. It was nice to be home. I got to revisit some of my favorite old study spots from high school, this time in the same coffee shops with much less anxiety than when I was obsessing over college applications and refreshing my email awaiting ACT scores. I had always had big dreams for school and my career. I wanted to go to NYU or UNC and craft myself into the East Coast academic type on the path to becoming a Fortune 500 CEO, the kind that would graduate with a 4.0 and watch the infighting between Oxford and Yale as they battle for my attendance to their graduate programs. It was rather ironic that instead I ended up playing beach volleyball at USC, but more on that later. The afternoon before Thanksgiving, I was working on an assignment at Sons of Liberty in Fort Worth. The floors at Sons are slabbed concrete and the pipes and vents are exposed, leaving it feeling like an industrial style loft. It sits across the street from a postal office that looks like it belongs in New York City, not mere miles from the Fort Worth stockyards. I've always found Sons to be inspiring, plus they make a great latte. As I sat there with my headphones in and my shoulders huddled over my laptop, I got a ping, a notification that I had an email from the Institute for Specialized Medicine. I should probably give you some background here. My life was great. I was a Division I athlete who had won multiple state and national championships in high school. I liked to travel everywhere, by myself or with my friends. I liked to hike pillboxes in Hawaii and go tubing on the Atlantic in Fort Lauderdale. I liked to scooter around Washington, D.C. and explore all of the places trains could take me in Europe. I had an internship in Congress and worked full-time during my leave of absence from USC on a campaign race. I had a 3.9 at SC and I led a student organization with over 250 members. But I had these episodes of pain, sharp, severe abdominal pain, pain that would put me on the floor, biting into a towel so I wouldn't scream and alarm my neighbors, pain that would cause my friends and family to throw me over their shoulders and rush me into the emergency room, pain that no doctor, nurse, or surgeon could ever figure out. And it was going on for years. My stomach would hurt so bad that I would lay on the floor crying and praying for it to stop. But after a while, with dozens of doctors telling me that they didn't know what was causing it, my pain was written off as anxiety, and I started to ignore the concern that it would cause. It wasn't just the stomach pain, though. I was constantly sick with something, be it pneumonia, strep throat, or sinus infections. I mean, seriously, it had been nonstop since I was seven. Childhood migraines morphed into GI dysfunction and mysterious viral infections that took months to fade away. I would sleep like 10 hours a night with an additional hour-long nap every afternoon, yet I felt like I was sleepwalking through my days, just constantly exhausted. My senior year of high school was when all of my health problems really started to affect me. I was committed to go play beach volleyball at Pepperdine with a scholarship, so I was living and breathing high school indoor volleyball at the time. 
but I started having this nagging pain in my left knee midway through the season. MRIs and x-rays showed nothing but bone bruises and inflammation. My joints were just achy, but there was nothing really to be seen. I got bronchitis, typical, but I recovered. It was during the middle of our biggest game of the year. We were playing our crosstown rivals and the house was packed. Several hundred people filled the small gym, making it really sweaty, but fueling my excitement to play. But halfway through the match, I started to feel off. I was kind of dizzy here and there. I remember going up and getting what would end up being the last kill of my indoor volleyball career. And when I landed and turned around to celebrate with my team, my vision slowly went black and my warm body hit the floor in a thud. It was the first time I had collapsed in such a dramatic setting, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. Dozens of doctor's appointments followed my fainting episode, but it was completely unexplainable. For a month, every time I would try to leave my house, I would essentially black out and fall. Sometimes I was awake before I hit the ground. Other times I was out for longer. I was in and out of the hospital for a while, attempting to figure out what was going on, but to no avail. My condition gradually improved, but not before my parents and I decided that it would be best to give up my volleyball career and stay in state for college. I had several flare-ups during my first semester at UT Austin, but nothing to stop me from wanting to try to play again. I missed volleyball. So I transferred to USC in the spring and walked onto the beach team. Playing NCAA sports means going through rigorous testing, blood work, cardiovascular observation, and physical exams before you can be cleared to compete. And with my history, understandably, they took extra precautions. But I passed all of the tests with flying colors, and I felt okay for the first few months. Until I didn't. I remember going down in the weight room pretty hard at the beginning of our season, seeing nothing but stars and my trainer standing over me asking what had happened. And the joint pain was back. This time it was concentrated in my right elbow and it was unbearable. I could barely swing at a ball anymore. I would get electric jolts from my joint up into my neck. It got to the point where I could barely push a car door open or hold myself up in a high plank. The inflammation and dysfunctional nerves would show up on MRIs and EMGs, but the source of my pain could never be identified. Plus, there was the whole passing out thing again. Two years later, I was back to where I once was walking away from the sport that I loved, aimlessly wandering through doctor's offices, begging someone to help me. The thing about my pain was that nobody could see it. Sure, maybe the swelling was visible, but when I would pass out or fall over gripping my stomach, it looked almost theatrical. So nothing showed up on the test for years, and I essentially had to move on with my life, accepting that it was likely in my head, or maybe I just had a really low tolerance for pain. For the next few years, I really was in shambles. I was coughing up a lung every four months. Pneumonia. I was losing my voice twice a year. Strep. I was a snotty, raspy, sticky mess every winter. Sinus infections. And that freaking stomach pain. I was hunched over nearly every dinner table gripping my legs with white knuckles. Finally, my family had had enough of watching me live like this. My dad's fiance encouraged me to reach out to a naturopathic doctor when I moved back to LA before my junior year. A doctor who happened to be my roommate's boyfriend's dad. Yeah, I know, kinda hard to follow. But the point is, he was the first one to ever really believe me, like truly believe me, and tell me that my pain was not normal and not a result of some crazy anxiety that I was bringing upon myself. Yeah, that was a real thing I was told was happening multiple times. So he drew blood. 
An excessive amount of blood, might I add. I actually passed out at the lab from how much blood I lost. But when the results came back, a lot of red flags popped up, including elevated ANA numbers. An ANA test is an anti-nuclear antibody panel, which can indicate if a person might have an autoimmune disease. My numbers were sky high, prompting my naturopath to refer me to a rheumatologist who naturally drew more blood. So here I am back at the scene, sitting in a coffee shop in Fort Worth that feels a lot more like home than anywhere I've lived in the past three years. And the blood work from the rheumatologist at the Institute for Specialized Medicine was back. I had received so many negative or normal blood results in the past that this email was unalarming. The notification was only melodramatic in hindsight because at the time, which is 14 months prior to the creation of this episode, I didn't expect any answers, certainly none that would rock my world. But I was wrong because that email changed my life. As soon as I read it, I quickly closed my laptop and scurried back to the car. I drove the 45 minutes home in deafening silence, confused mostly. That can't be right, can it? Where would I have even caught that? Is it autoimmune? Is it contagious? So many questions. I walked into my mom's house and after sitting down at the counter for a minute, asked her, so what do you know about Lyme disease? I know a lot more now than I did back then. For instance, I know that I likely caught it when I was about seven years old, growing up in East Texas. Lyme disease is a result of a tick bite, which are commonly overlooked, especially on young kids. Not everyone always has that famous rash that you might think of when you think of it. I know that at this point, I am stage three, which means it's spread to my joints, my brain, and my heart. Because it went untreated for so long, my body has succumbed to many co-infections of Lyme, a lot of which explain the strange symptoms I've been experiencing for my whole life. Take my cardiovascular system, for example. There's a condition known as postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. It's gathered a lot of attention over the last few years as there's been a significant uptick in cases, but it's still very hard to treat. There's a lot of different symptoms, including a rapid increase in heart rate when you sit up or stand up, And on top of POTS, I have delayed orthostatic hypotension, which means that my blood pressure also drops significantly in addition to my heartbeat skyrocketing. This causes me to lose consciousness at bizarre times, like, say, in the middle of a volleyball game. Stage 3 Lyme disease is also notorious for the painful arthritis that patients develop over time. For me, it was present in my left knee in high school and my right elbow in college. We just didn't know at the time that that's what it was. And while they found answers to a lot of my other mysterious issues, like finding out I have a half-functioning gallbladder from a HIDA scan, a disease known as biliary dyskinesia, and discovering endometriosis through surgery last summer, some of my pain is still unexplained. My stomach episodes are still a huge question mark, which is ironic since that's what led me to pursue medical treatment in the first place. So if you know anything at all about Lyme disease, you probably know that unless you catch it in the first month, there's no guaranteed cure. Some people have better luck with antibiotics than others. We definitely tried. I was officially diagnosed by my doctor a few days after Thanksgiving, and we set up treatment protocol immediately. My family and I temporarily relocated to San Diego two weeks later so that we could go to the Institute for Specialized Medicine every day for the next month while USC was on Christmas break. Each day, the infusion nurses would hook me up to an IV, and I would sit for a few hours while the azithromycin drip, drip, dripped into my veins. This was coupled with oral doxycycline until I started school again in January, when the IV was replaced with biweekly injections of bicillin and more oral antibiotics. 
If the daily IV wasn't going to kill me, it really felt like the injections were. I would drive from LA to San Diego about five hours round trip every other week and lay face down as a nurse injected two shots of medicine into each of my hips and I would waddle back to my car trying my best not to throw up on the way home, back to South Central LA, to my small two-bedroom apartment without air conditioning, laundry, or dishwasher that my roommate Tessa and I lived in. That apartment is like a treasure chest of good memories from my only true full year of college. We loved living at our self-titled trap pad, despite the rat infestations and break-ins. Honestly, that was my best year at USC. But I wasn't living a normal life like my friends were. These antibiotics aren't what you would expect. Usually when you have strep throat, let's say, you start taking your pills and within 24 hours you feel a lot better. In 48 hours, you might feel back to your normal self. Fever gone, inflammation down, appetite returned. But with these drugs for this purpose, it's kind of the opposite. The IV and injections felt closer to chemotherapy than a normal course of penicillin for an acute illness. I was incredibly nauseous every morning, and my blood pressure was uncontrollable. I had horrible headaches, and it felt like my bones were cracking apart with every step I would take. I lost 8 pounds in the first week, 8 pounds that I didn't have to lose in the first place. Several times on my drive home after those injections a couple months later, I had to pull over on the side of the road to throw up. I struggled for months to keep food down. My body was running a constant fever, aggressively fighting the effects of bacteria dying off. All I wanted to do was sleep. The antibiotics didn't make me feel better. Rather, I was temporarily much worse. Eventually, I couldn't handle the side effects of the medications anymore, and I was still catching acute strep and pneumonia, which seemed like an impossible thing. And my doctors pulled me off all the, quote, hardcore drugs so that I could finish school early. We did several surgeries and procedures in the summer before my last semester of college, and then I cranked out 22 hours of classes this fall. Last month, I officially graduated summa cum laude from USC with a big screw you to Lyme disease. Look, I don't think my words in this one monologue can fully do the disease justice for all it is capable of. It's taken a lot from me. I've been sick virtually my entire life, but until I was diagnosed, I felt completely insane. I had convinced myself that I was just being dramatic and that I was weak. My pain tolerance was low, when in reality, it was actually pretty high and I was pretty strong. I was taking the phrase, push through the pain to a whole new level. Looking back before I found out about the Lyme, I put myself in some pretty bad situations. I was passing out and just getting up like nothing ever happened 10 minutes later. I would be out at dinner with my friends, throw up in the bathroom, and come back thinking I just ate something bad. During my worst arthritis flare-ups, I was lifting hundreds of pounds in the weight room, pushing 20 or 30-hour weeks for NCAA, and just pretending like everything was normal despite being in a world of hurt. There was one time that I had pneumonia that I didn't even realize I was coughing so much until my family pointed it out to me and took me to an urgent care clinic in Florida. So my diagnosis made me feel vindicated in a way. The pain wasn't ever just in my head and I wasn't being dramatic at all. But even after my diagnosis, I continued to face a lot of skepticism, especially from doctors and nurses who strictly practice Western medicine. Not all of them, but some of them. They often take one look at me as a six-foot-tall, athletically-built 23-year-old girl and write off my symptoms as anxiety. A few months ago, I was the sickest I had ever been. It started off as strep and a sinus infection, the usual, which should have normally been cleared up by a week of Augmentin. But after nine days or so, I was dragging myself into the student health clinic, my blood pressure hitting 141 over 98, and my heart rate unable to come down below 100. 
The doctor watched me have a mild asthma attack and nearly faint and sat down next to me and recommended I go upstairs to the mental health clinic to be evaluated for anxiety because I was, quote, clearly having a panic attack. You know, it's instances like these that cause anxiety, not anxiety that causes instances like these. So, of course, the blood work came back a few days later and showed I actually had pneumonia. It was not, in fact, a panic attack, but rather an infection in my lungs that was causing them to fill with fluid. And I found that these incidents are not unique to my situation. In all of the fuss, I had been feeling so alone. It was an overwhelming feeling of isolation because stories like mine are so hard to find from talking to people you meet every day or even from a Google search. But I knew there had to be more people out there like me, not necessarily with Lyme disease, but people who look young and healthy but don't feel young and healthy. I was connected about a year ago to a great family who also suffered at the hands of this disease for years, and after hearing their stories of similarity, I just cried. I wasn't alone, and neither were they. Over the recent months, I've been chasing this idea, one that I didn't want to be true, but unfortunately it is. An idea that simply put is that the medical system is failing a lot of people like me just because we don't look sick. It's this idea of the invisible illness. Today, you'll get to hear the story of Haley Hallgren. She and I were teammates at USC. Neither one of us knew it at the time, but we were both very, very sick. Haley is one of the highest achieving athletes I've ever met. She's so successful, dozens of awards, national championships. I mean, she was scary on the court. She was so good. And she definitely played a key role in shaping the beach volleyball program at USC into what it is today. I looked up to her all of the time, especially when we were teammates at USC. And she was a co-captain of the team and helped lead the Trojans to an NCAA championship all while having cancer. And after talking to Haley, I knew I couldn't just stop there. So I hunted down more athletes whose stories closely resemble mine, and I truly believe your mind will be blown by what they have to say. So this is Malls on Mike, a podcast where I can share not only my journey, but the journeys of others as we all pursue health and wellness together. I'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. For the first season, all episodes will be in a narrative format in order to adequately capture the power of these voices I'm interviewing. Malls on Mike is for everyone, from the high school kid with big dreams to play in college, to NCAA athletes trying to find community, to parents of kids with diseases and adults both sick and healthy. Welcome to my little community. I hope you'll find peace here. I'm present on social media at Malls on Mike, which is M-O-L-L-S-O-N-M-I-C, and at Smalls Davis, S-M-O-L-L-S-D-A-V-I-S. So you can contact me however is convenient for you, Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook. I welcome your feedback and my DMs are always open to chat. I can't promise you that this podcast is going to be perfect. I'm still learning the ropes, but I can promise you that it will be authentic, and I think that's more important. I hope you'll give Haley's episode a listen. I know you won't regret it.